Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Browns Note Podcast. This is Ryan Burns coming to you from Dog Pound West in Orange County, California. You can find me at FTBL Sickness. You can find the podcast at the Browns Note. If you're enjoying these podcasts of late, drop us a review if you would, preferably a positive one. But be honest. We trust you. We appreciate your feedback. Uh, this episode is going to be my friend Pete Smith. We haven't had Pete on in quite a while, mostly because we took about a year off. Pete uh, is going to come on and give us the the case for Baker Mayfield. Pete, as those of you who are following him on Twitter know full well, is a I think it's it's fair to call Pete a Baker Mayfield honk. Uh, there aren't too many more vocal supporters, and frankly, I don't blame him. Guy's a hell of a player. There are a lot of things that suggest he ought to be the number one overall ranked player in the in the draft, but obviously there are also those other things. And so we'll talk to Pete about all the good, the bad, the unknown, the unknowable about Baker Mayfield, and Pete will give you all the reasons why he thinks Baker Mayfield would be the right choice for our Cleveland Browns at number one overall. And yes, we're making the assumption of number one overall. We sure are. If you need to figure out why, go back a couple episodes. We go off about that. Number one overall as a quarterback. Quit talking about it. <laughs> I talked to Pete about a, about a number of things. This conversation is actually a few days old by the time I'm recording this intro and and posting this podcast. I had a lot of time last week, so I recorded a bunch of different conversations, and that way I can keep rolling them out without having to kill myself to get them on for you people. Um, it's going to be a fun one to listen to, I think. You'll hear a lot of good things from Pete about a lot of different topics. We, we cover, obviously, uh, it, when we spoke the big flurry of trades had just happened. So I'll get Pete's reaction to those. We talk about Tyrod Taylor, Pete coaches quarterbacks, much like Brendan does. So Pete will give you his thoughts on Tyrod generally. Um, Pete has been doing pieces at NFL spin zone about both the offensive and defensive lines. And so I asked him about some of that. And then of course, the, the big reason I had him on for this episode was to do the case for Baker Mayfield. We're, we're going to run through each of these quarterbacks I'm going to have people who like each of these quarterbacks come on and, and tell you why they ought to be the guy. I think in a class like this, which I personally, and that's the test we'll be using here, I personally uh, see a pretty talented quarterback class. I think this is one of the deeper, more high-end quarterback classes we've had in some time. I'm not going to get caught up in whether it's one, two, three, whatever. This is a good quarterback class, and if you don't think so, I think you're bugging. Um, and so with our franchise in desperate need and possessing the number one overall pick and the number four overall pick and having just traded for Tyrod Taylor, who screams bridge quarterback, uh, I thought it would be prudent to have all these guys on and start talking about it. And so with that, uh, I'll just tell you that there have been a couple of free agent moves, but we're going to save the free agency stuff until we have a bigger picture, a clearer picture of the big picture, if you will. Uh, want to see how... The rest of free agency plays out, and indeed, it doesn't actually start until, uh, let's see, tonight, as I'm sitting here recording this on the West Coast, it is still Tuesday night at 9 p.m., so free, ag free agency doesn't technically even start until tomorrow, but the reality is we know where pretty much everybody's going, so uh, we know what the Browns got, but we'll come back and we'll talk about it in a few days once we see how the whole process plays out. Plus, in the interim, I've got content. Here's our conversation with... Pete Smith on the Browns Note Podcast. All right, I am glad.
glad to be joined once again. It has been more than a year, according to my Skype log here, by Pete Smith. You can find him on Twitter at underscore Pete Smith underscore. He is a Streetsboro QBs coach. I believe that may be either a new addition to the bio or just a new public addition to the bio since last we spoke. Uh, contributor to NFL Spin Zone. He appears on Brown's podcast near and far, and he stays slaying Twitter trolls and egg avatars with gusto these days who continue to make the tired arguments of the Browns Twitter world. How are you, Pete? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad the uh, sponsorships came through and, and you're back and that you could finally afford to, uh, to pull this together before it becomes the, uh, before the Rams make a better offer. Well, we'll see how that all goes. I've, I've been repeating the theme in recent weeks that that, that Rams hat is coming with me to the draft. Although these days I <laughs> feel like I should take a Niners hat too, just in case, see how things turn out. But you're right. The sponsorships did come through. Tonight's is uh, sponsored by, let's see, what bottle of red wine is this? It is, uh, oh yeah, The Abstract by Oren Swift. So that's, that's going to be our honorary sponsor tonight. Um, we're going to talk about a number of things. You've been doing a bunch of writing and a bunch of pre-draft analysis. We'll talk about all that. You've got some thoughts on sort of the, <laughs> hey, surprise, we have a new regime since last we spoke, Pete. We'll talk about that a little bit. And, uh, and then... The main reason we're doing this one tonight, anyway, is because you are going to make the case for Baker Mayfield. So I look forward to all of it. Um, but let's start with some of the 20,000-foot reaction to the general moves. Obviously, we don't know how it's all going to fit into the big picture come September with total clarity. But um, Jarvis Landry, Tyrod Taylor, uh, trading Danny Shelton. Um, I'm forgetting a move. Uh, Randall from Green Bay. Uh, interesting bunch of moves. They at least, for whatever else I can say about it, my, my view of it is at least they didn't give up, you know, those first several picks, the, the first and second rounders. At least, um, you know, they did something to address the quarterback position with a guy who I think is at least competent. Um, but beyond that, I can't say I'm real thrilled. And I noticed that you in particular are not super psyched about the Jarvis Landry edition. So people immediately will say that Jarvis Landry, he has 400 receptions in four years. He's made three pro bowls. I get it. it. And it sounds great. And I understand for the average person goes, well, we haven't had that since, you know, God only like never literally the, the franchise has never had somebody that prolific. I mean, Kevin Johnson right now is the most prolific receiver in new Browns history. Um, and that's pitiful. That is an indictment of where this organization has gone. And Josh Gordon, here's the problem program. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Josh Gordon could, could very well, if he, if he just stayed clean, he would crush all these things. Um, in football, if you're looking at this from a coaching standpoint or a basketball standpoint, you are looking at this from a, if you're on defense, who do I need to stop? If you're facing the Browns, the answer is Josh Gordon. The answer is going to be David Dejoku. The answer is going to be Duke Johnson. No one is scared of Jarvis Landry. And defenses legitimately tell you, here, throw it to him for five yards. We'll tackle him. No worries. And, and I wrote about this, and I was doing the research on it. And, you know, 54 per, 54% of uh Jarvis Landry receptions go for first downs. Seth the valve is at 63%. That's 
you know, if you're telling me he's a chain mover, that's, that's sort of a problem. All you have to do is play decent run defense. Stop these other guys from killing you. Josh Gordon can legitimately kill you. That's a guy who keeps you up at night. If you're a defensive coordinator, Jarvis Landry's our least athletic offensive player. He's less athletic than Dan Vitale. He's less athletic than Tyrod Taylor. And you're telling me this guy scares anyone. He doesn't. And every time he gets the ball, that means Josh Gordon didn't get the ball. That means David Njoku didn't get the ball. That means Duke Johnson didn't get the ball. He doesn't scare anyone. So if he's catching the ball and half the time, he doesn't get a first down. You're basically saying about once every two series, if Jarvis Landry got the ball, you're going to punt. So Jarvis Landry's going to end up with a bunch of great looking numbers and you've punted the ball and ultimately lost the statistics well, on un- this. Unpack that for me, Pete, just cause I want to make sure I understand it. And, and if I don't, I'm sure there are a few listeners. I just want to make sure I understand when, because I saw it at somebody's tweet, it might've been Breer, right? But I don't want to misattribute it. Somebody was saying today they characterized him as a quote unquote first down machine. And I gave that sort of the, you know, the quizzical puppy dog head tilt because that was not after having, you know, I saw enough of their, of their games and I saw him enough that that wasn't exactly my view of him. I mean, look, the guy makes some really impressive catches. He's got great hands. I'll give him all that. Um, But like you say, it's not moving the chains at a prolific rate. But even so, I guess uh, the arg- the counter to that, and I, I'd, I'd be curious about your your sort of expanse on this, is it seems to me two things. Number one, isn't he going to have more space Let's if we're assuming, for example, that all those guys that you mentioned are going to be reliably on the field, which leaving aside for a moment the wisdom of that assumption or lack thereof, um, you know, by design at least it would seem that if you've got Coleman and Gordon on the outside and then Njoku and a Duke and, and suddenly isn't there more room for Jarvis Landry? And some, some might say, well, after the catch is sort of his thing. I'm not sure the numbers bear that out, but, but there's that. But it, it isn't the idea that if you can get him making a six yard catch on first down, for example, now you're ahead of the sticks. Theoretically. I mean, it makes sense, but here, here are the numbers. Uh, he averages 10 yards of reception. He averages five yards per reception after the catch. So basically right there on the math, he averages getting the ball basically five yards across the line of scrimmage and then he'll run for five. That's his average. You know, there's obviously going to be things that move that up if he breaks a big one, whatever, but that's sort of what he is. In other words, he's not really somebody who's ever going to terrify you, but in games, Jarvis, the, the, the Dolphins played 65 games in Jarvis Landry's career. He didn't miss one. He's durable as hell. That's certainly in his favor. Their record in games, Jarvis Landry led the team in rece- receiving yards, seven and 15. Their record when Jar- anyone else led the team in receiving yards, 23 and 20. That's staggering to me that it tells you this does not scare us at all. We want him to have the ball because as long as he has the ball, None of these other great players do. You can drop back a little bit, drop your backers into zone or whatever, let him catch the ball underneath and just tackle him. That's, that's how you stop him. And now you can convert, can, uh, put more resources on stopping the guys who actually are going to hurt you, Josh Gordon and all these other guys. The other problem with this is quarterbacks like completions. So if maybe Josh Gordon's going to be open, but it'll take a second or David joke is going to be open and it's going to take a second but they're leaving you wide open Jarvis Landry. 
and you're not some veteran quarterback who's sort of really figured this stuff out, um, you're going to take that easy profit and it's going to be fool's gold because they're, you're doing exactly what the defense wants you to do. Ultimately, you're either going to make a mistake. You're going to find yourself in bad yardage, but ultimately you punt well, and the numbers back it up. You're walking you're into their plan. Yeah. You're walking into their plan because of what you said earlier, which is you've now helped them out by not throwing the ball to all these other more explosive guys. Exactly. And, and the reason I, I related to basketball is it's the same concept. Let's say you're the Cavs. You're going against the Cavs. I should say you want to make sure LeBron James doesn't beat you. He's going to do whatever he's going to do at a certain point, but you're going to make anyone else on that team beat you. Yeah, That's want, where Jarvis Landry becomes any jumpers. <laughs> right. So, so now uh, this guy who's going to make $16 million is Larry Nance. That's where this problem. Now, if you're not going to sign him to an extension, which they shouldn't, and he's going to walk, maybe has a pro bowl year after they win five games and Hugh Jackson gets fired and they get a compensatory pick back. It's brilliant. I like, I love that idea. What scares the hell out of me is the idea of if you're negotiating contracts extension, Jarvis Landry's not going to come off a $16 million deal to take like five. He's going to take like 10 a year. And now you're paying $10 million for a guy who doesn't help you really win games. That's sort of the rub. Yep. I, I tend to see it the same way. I don't feel as strongly about it as you do just because, um, and this is a sort of a cop-out reason I'll, I'll grant at the outset, but it's, it's part of it is just, look, that room has been God awful for so long and this guy's going to catch the football. I know that. Um, so we'll, you know, baby steps, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, although I, I totally hear you. Let me ask you this in sort of a related matter. How do you handicap the question of whether Corey Coleman's going to be even on this roster come September? Allegedly, it's a, a, a live discussion right now, and there are people who are saying they should get rid of him. I mean, Hugh Jackson is one of them. Uh, and, it, and some of it comes down to they don't like his attitude or the way he carries himself or that type of stuff. And then there are people, who, and this is why this shit drives me nuts, is there are people people in that building who are saying Corey Coleman will never get past a drop in a game that may have decided 0 and 16 or one and 15. Now this does not happen at other places. Sammy Watkins is not being thrown out of LA, even though he dropped a ball in the end zone of a playoff game late in the game. But this is just a very unique Cleveland thing where you cannot do anything wrong or it lives with you forever. And I understand there's this mentality. You just lose, but Corey Coleman is barely older than Calvin Ridley. And he's substantially more talented. Like the idea that anyone would chase this kid out because this becomes the, the, the sort of poster child for they gave up on him too quickly. He goes to a place like say, God forbid he ends up in new Orleans and drew Brees is thrown to this oh dude and Michael Thomas or new England. They're just going to be run, run up and down the field. Like he's so gifted, broken bones happen. I mean, nobody, this is the same thing. Nobody does this to Kevin love. He's broken his hand three times. Nobody's trying to get rid of him. And Corey Coleman legitimately tore up Jalen Ramsey who's a great, 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 great corner. Do not make the mistake of giving up on this kid because, Oh, you know, they lost some meaningless game. Yeah, it not everybody comes out day. of the womb a professional football player. And the whole point of having a coaching staff is to develop super talented guys. And I'm getting kind of an, kind of impatient 
with a staff that doesn't seem all that willing to do that to me. I mean, the the, the way that a guy like Kaiser, was, whatever you think of Kaiser's talent, and you and I tend to agree sort of on the, the ups and downs of that, um, I don't think anybody thinks the way his rookie year was handled was was prudent. And part of that is we're not putting the ball in the hands of the most talented players. We're not putting the ball in Duke Johnson's hands. We're not force-feeding David Njoku in a season where we're going 0-16 for the purposes of him being useful in 2018. And it just didn't make any sense to me at all. And so for me, a lot of that stuff, I come back to, look, you can't have a bunch of super talented players and tell me you can't coach any of them. Oh, right, right, right. I'll touch on two things. First, JC Treader is the product of being hurt for a couple of years on bad accidents, people falling into him in green Bay and stuff. It's the same type of thing that happened to Corey Coleman. He leaves green Bay because they had another dude there, Corey Lindsley, who's been great for them. Uh, J.C. Treader comes here. He fills in as our, as our center, has been healthy the whole time. Bad luck happens. He was a good center, not great. Hopefully he'll get better. Uh, but he was a nice signing. cost next to nothing. He's been great. Hugh Jackson should wear Deshaun Kaiser for the rest of his career. What he did to that poor child is horrific. It is everything that's wrong with coaching in this world. Because there were people in that front office and on the coaching staff who told this man Deshaun Kaiser is not ready. Sashi Brown said it the second they picked him. David Lee pled the entire training camp that he was not ready. Both of those guys have been fired. Hugh Jackson is still here, and they just threw uh, Deshaun Kaiser to Siberia, and I couldn't be happier for the kid because what was done to him was absolutely terrible. Siberia is going to be warmer than Cleveland for Deshaun Kaiser. Right. And, and I've, and I've talked Deshaun Kaiser struggled on Deshaun Kaiser's own merits, but they did nothing to benefit this kid. It was horrible malpractice. And like, this is why I don't like the idea of people who go, just throw them in there. You know, they're either going to be able to play or they're not. Not everybody works like that. Quarterback's really, really hard. And it's just unfair to him. And I think his career dynamic would have been substantially different if uh, you know, he was on the bench the whole year. Yep. They'd still be, but should be looking at quarterback here this year, but at least Deshaun Kaiser would be an entity. Now they're going to literally take every quarterback who was on the roster last year and get rid of all of them, which should hang on Hugh for the rest of his coaching life. He's the quarterback coach, self-proclaimed QB guru who handpicked these guys and they all failed. Yep. Well, Speaking of which, I think we can safely assume that he did not handpick Tyrod Taylor. And I wonder, uh, given that you do coach the position, if you could give me, I know, I, I don't know, well, I don't know whether you've studied him closely or not, but I wonder to whatever degree you've, you've looked at him, tell me your quick profile on Tyrod Taylor. Tyrod Taylor is very, here's the thing. He's credible. He's credible in a way AJ McCarron was never going to be credible. That is a massive you were taking a lot of. <laughs> yes. I, like I can't. Like I don't like giving up 65th pick for for Tyrod Taylor, but I understand giving up 65th for for Tyrod Taylor because it changes the complexion of the organization in a way that matters. AJ McCarron was magic beans. Maybe he'd be great. I don't think he would be. Uh, but taking any of these other guys and adding them into this mix who never really played is just sort of another you know attempt at finding something that wasn't there. 
whatever you think of Tyrod Taylor, and he's not a great quarterback, but he's credible. He's been, you know, he started a ton of games. He's played the last, started the last three seasons in Buffalo. He's been to a playoff game. Um, he's got, you know, some ability to at least not screw it up. The biggest benefit with, and, and what's, what I think is very telling about the, the acquisition of Tyrod Taylor compared to Deshaun Kaiser, going from a guy who basically who led the league in turnovers last year to a guy who throws an interception 1% of his passes, a guy who protects the football like it's his life. Even fumbles, Deshaun or, uh, Tyrod Taylor really, really clamped down on. I think he only had one this past year, and he runs the ball. I think he, I think he had a total of 84 rushing attempts this past year. But if you did nothing else with the Browns and just improved their red zone efficiency, they would have won a couple games. That's how bad it was. Um, but but I think the important thing and what where I think this can be very helpful for a rookie quarterback um, is Tyrod Taylor was successful in part because he had LaShawn McCoy. They ran the ball either with McCoy or Tyrod himself. Ball control offense. Let the defense get off the field for a minute. Those type of things are important. They didn't throw a ton of passes. I think the most passes Tyrod Taylor ever attempted this season was 420. Like that's you know 170 less than the Browns did last season. That's a notable difference. Um, I, I think it's this is I imperative. Bet Todd Haley doesn't call it like that. Well, that that's going to be an interesting it's dynamic, but I think. They really, really need, and I'm not suggesting Saquon Barkley. In fact, I, I'm, I'm pretty uh, open on my opinion. I think that would be a bad idea at one or four. I think it's a but I do think they need to get idea at one. You don't think that's going to happen, do you? No, I, they, they, they've made it pretty clear it's quarterback. It's just a question of which. But they do need guys who can run between the tackles. They need guys who can eat up yards, who can grind out a game, and 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 that even if Tyrod's a one-year deal that's going to carry over whichever quarterback they take. Nothing's going to make this new, a rookie quarterback, whoever, it doesn't matter which one it is more comfortable than being able to turn and hand the ball off 20 times and be able to count on the fact that they're going to get, you know, 80 to hundred yards. Every time they're going to have guys like Duke Johnson, some of those things that can make their life so much easier in addition to an offensive line. And that's what a big reason Deshaun Kaiser was such a struggle uh, is they didn't have a reliable running game, but, but the the games where the Browns came the closest last year, not surprisingly, they ran the ball the best. Even when Deshaun Kaiser was like, people were talking, oh, he looks pretty good in this game. They ran the hell out of the ball. Detroit stands out as a really obvious one. They had a ton of rushing yards between Duke Johnson and Isaiah Crowell. Will not be back. Um, those are going to help a young quarterback more than anything. So I'm, I'm hoping now Todd Haley may change things. He really loves, you know, quick passes, get the ball out. Uh, That may help Tyrod Taylor a bit because that's been sort of the opposite. He's a guy who loves to run around a little bit with the ball in his hands uh, as is, you know, the case with some of these guys who trust their legs a little bit, but if he can just get the ball out of his hands to his playmakers, which the Browns at least theoretically have, it can look like a functional offense don't turn the ball over. They're going to win games just based on that fact. Yep. Yep. And we'll, we'll talk some more about quick game when we get to the Baker Mayfield discussion. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you, what about on the defensive line? I know you've spent a lot of time over the course of the last at least year or so looking at the defensive line and really starting to feel like that's a group of strength. You know, they traded Danny Shelton, of course, this morning. So that's part of 
this question now. Obviously, uh, the feeling is one of two things and probably both. The fifth-year option was going to be awfully spendy for a guy who wasn't going to play very much. And number two, it doesn't seem like at least very much relative to that number. And then it, it seems like this is one of those questions where, okay, well, if you're assuming that this is the scheme we're running, uh, Danny Shelton isn't as valuable as he was for, say, the Mike Pettin 3-4, and he isn't as valuable as I bet you they find him to be in Bill Belichick's New England Patriots room. Um, but, but give me your view on sort of how the defensive line plays out now. Obviously a big role coming for Larry Ogunjobi, but does this loosen up your thinking about what they may or may not do sort of with those first five picks in the first two rounds? Well, first... Danny Shelton is really, really good at what he does. What he does just doesn't fit what the Browns do. And that's okay. I have no problem with the idea of saying that Danny Shelton doesn't fit what you want to do from a defensive schematic standpoint. They want defensive linemen who are going to get up the field, collapse the pocket and come problems. Uh, Danny Shelton was a guy who's going to clog the hell out of the middle. Keep your linebackers protected. Uh, and that's exactly what new England wants. He was legitimately great at doing that. Uh, this idea that he was somehow a bad player, it just doesn't make sense. And the, the, this nonsense that Bill Belichick wants a bad player, that's not how he thinks. He wants, he wants Danny Shelton to be exactly what Danny Shelton is, who is just 24 years old. Keep that in mind. He is a monster of a man who's just 24. Um, I, I'm, I'm annoyed exactly that they got the kind at, of player that goes to New England and absolutely thrives. He's exactly the kind of guy. Right. And that, and that's why I've said, I think he will have a bigger impact in new England than Jarvis Landy will in Cleveland. All these people are, you know, this is insane, whatever. Danny Shelton's going to be probably competing for a super bowl next year. And he's going to be replacing Alan branch who is a thousand years old. Uh, and he's going to be a much better player next to Malcolm Brown. They're going to crush the run and hopefully they'll, for their sake, they're going to address their pass rush issue. But I'm annoyed at the compensation they got at and at the trade. And, and, and I actually had people say to me today, well, John Dorsey can't, can't be as good at trades as Sashi Brown. Mind blowing that this is where we're at. He can't be as good as the lawyer. So just let's, let's just leave that there. Now from the Browns point of view on the defensive line, what this makes me think is they're going to take, they want Bradley Chubb and they want it bad. Um, and no, again, not at one, they want him at four. And if they can't get him at four because he went two or three, I think they will trade down. And the re and what I think is ultimately going to happen is between Larry Ogunjobi, Miles Garrett, and Emmanuel Ogba, who is ridiculously underrated. I have no idea why people don't think he's great in Cleveland. Everybody else does. Uh, it's weird, but I think he's going to have an outstanding third year. If they get those two and Bradley Chubb, if they can just hold the team on first down to like two yards they're going to go sub package nuts for the next two, three downs. They are going to have what, where he was really special at. And maybe they'll change how they want to do this. Miles Garrett was, is, is phenomenal at anything. You could put him at quarterback. He'd probably be better than we've had this past couple of years. Play him anywhere. He's a phenom, but at low the, bar, brother. <laughs> the, when he was at the three technique, his first sack, I'm still not sure the guard touched him. Um, if you have him at your three technique, you have Ogba at the left end, and now you put Ray Bradley Chubb next to Miles Garrett. Somebody's going to have a problem blocking these guys. And now, God willing, uh, we won't have to see quite as much blitzing. Um, I, I think the angel concept is dead. 
uh, with with the moves they made uh, and and just the carryover from year one to year two. Uh, it was a necessity last year. It is no longer. If I see that shit this year, I'm going to lose it because that was a horrible <laughs> defense. But it made sense when you had corners you didn't trust and a guy who never played free safety. Like you could defend that ideal uh, in that moment. But now you don't. Now you're going to have, I assume, Demarius Randall at free. Uh, where he played in college in your Pac-12. I'm sure you remember him. I do, Um, and he was a playmaking guy and sort of a risk-reward kind of guy, and frankly, I'm fine with it. I don't expect – again, I put him into the category of a whatever move we'll see. Maybe he'll thrive. Who knows? But do I jump up and down about it? No. Most most of these kinds of moves tend not to be the ones that matter come December. Well, at the very least, I think ultimately it's a stopgap move that, that really takes Minka Fitzpatrick out of the conversation. Um, they don't need a free safety. Certainly they could take one if they really love one, but this isn't a great class for them. So I think from that standpoint, it's important. Uh, I like the fact that they're going into the draft. You know, Free agency obviously hasn't happened yet. With less obvious needs, it allows them to operate from a position of we can pick the best players yeah, as opposed to God. We, right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, they can really go in and say, this is the best player to help us win football games as opposed to, man, we really got to get one of these or we're in trouble. Like that's a good, that's a genuinely responsible organizational attitude. That's certainly uh, a, an improvement. And certainly in this third year of whatever you want to call this, that's, that's a, a, that's a big boy step for an organization that hasn't always been that. So whether it's Bradley Chubb, the other guy I love, um, if they were to move down a few spots is Harold Landry at a Boston college. Um, I would, I would ask, tell anyone to watch his junior tape. He was dinged with an ankle he's injury really all this good. year, but a lot of people will say he's a one trick pony. And I would tell you, watch him play the run. He's tough watch him do other things other than an outside speed rush. The guy can get 45 degrees in a way that, you know, you, we haven't seen in a while, but man, he's not just a one trick guy, but again, it's the same concept. Miles Garrett or, or uh, whichever one they want to go with slides inside. Now this guy who's a completely different animal comes in the right end and somebody has got to block all these guys is really, really hard. Uh, and, and, and the fact that they've sort of at least, you don't have to love this secondary, but you can at least say it looks like an NFL defense. So it sort of allows them to sort of decide that, Hey, we, we've really, really, really like this front seven. We want it to be special. So they can really put in pour in the assets. If it's a Chubb, if it's a Landry, if it's a, whatever, they got the linebackers they like, hopefully they'll play more traditional linebacker roles. But now you're going to have all these guys are going to attack the quarterback and just an obscene amount of speed on the field all the time that just, leads to a lot of interesting uh, concepts. And, and you talked about Demarius Randall as a gambler. And I think that's part of the, and obviously the Packers guys came over and they have some familiarity with it, but I think that's part of the reason they like him is if they could put yeah, pressure on the I'm quarterback, trying to turn the ball over here. That's part of the deal. Right. And, 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 and look, this is a team that had what seven interceptions last year. That's, you know, that's not how it's going to work. If you're going to be a competent football team, they got to turn the ball over. And if they can just beat the hell out of quarterbacks, and, and guys like Randall and some of these other, if they bring in a Brashad Breland or, or whoever, suddenly they have, you know, guys who can turn the ball over. They may not be, you know, the greatest secondary in the league, but you don't have to, as long as you've got credibility on one end and you've got special, special, special players. On the other, the Eagles just showed you 
how this can happen. And the Browns are at least in position where they can do that type of thing on defense. And how about on the offensive line? You know, I noticed a piece you wrote, uh, I feel like it's been maybe two weeks now, but it was about the offensive line, the way that the new regime is, um, well, and I'll, I'll back it up and sort of let you give the, the more thorough summary of it, but, but the, the short version as I would attempt to summarize it for a reader is you, you propose that perhaps the Browns have imported from Green Bay uh, sort of a skeleton key with retur- with respect to how to evaluate and identify value in offensive linemen. And you make a pretty compelling case. And so without, you know, ruining the click, I wonder if you might sort of give the, the audio podcast version of that case and tell us what you're talking about. So I have long been jealous of the Packers and how they've been able to identify offensive line talent. They get a lot of really good players. They've used first round picks. They've used second round picks on guys. Obviously, Brian Bulaga is a first round guy. Uh, Jason Spriggs has been a relative disappointment as a second round guy. Amazingly, they haven't quit on him. I don't know what that's like. But they've got a lot of these guys where they've just found it. David Bakhtiari was a fourth round pick, and he's one of the best offensive tackles in football. Uh, he's truly a special player. Like he was When he was at Colorado, he was basically one of the most athletic guys on the team at the time. Uh, but they have managed to find in what, what I would say are athletic traits that translate to effective offensive line play. And this past year, obviously I went heavy into debt analytics and, and stuff. And a, a huge nod to Jim Coburn, who does fantastic work with this stuff. Uh, he's invaluable as that somebody I can't give enough credit to, but you study what sort of translates in this. And, and the Packers last year took a late round guy in Kofi Amichia uh, out of South Florida. And then they took two undrafted guys, Jeff Gray out of Manitoba uh, and Christian Davis out of UC Davis or Christian, Christian Schneider out of UC Davis. And you probably said, how the hell does he know these guys? Well, I actually figured when I, I made, wrote an article basically detailing the guys I thought the Browns should be targeting or thought they would target based on these data points. And those three guys were all on the list and they all ended up in green Bay. And since, and, and uh, Jeff gray was signed during the season after Dorsey got the job from green Bay. Uh, he's a guard out of Canada who actually impressed people at his pro day by riding a unicycle. And if you're 300 and something pounds, I don't know what kind of unicycle that is, but that's impressive. But, and he's a guard. And I think ultimately he's going to chase out USC welfare in the form of Marcus Martin. Uh, and then Christian Snyder's the one I'm really excited about because he was a tackle. He's only 22 years old. Now he was supremely athletic. And this is a team that, that rolled out Spencer Durango and, and I've killed Spencer Durango. And, and I'm, as I'm sure he's listening, you valiantly played your ass off this past year. I give you nothing. A known subscriber to the Browns note podcast, Spencer Drango. He, he can, he can rub the Joey Bosa performance in my face for the rest of his life. It was absolutely astounding. He's got his limitations, but it was great. Um, and, and you have these and, and Rod Johnson last year, who, if you watch the tape, he can't play dead. If you look at his athletic profile, he can't move. Christian Snyder, who nobody will know other than the many, many, many millions of listeners on here is somebody I expect will make the roster this coming year. He's just that athletic and he has those traits that just succeed in the NFL. 
Uh, and I, and, and it, uh, to me, it's not a mistake at all that green Bay comes over and two of the first things they do are bring these offensive linemen with them. Uh, I think they're going to chase out Zach Banner, Marcus Martin, and some of these other guys who are just bums, straight up bums. And it's going to be important uh, when it comes to evaluating offensive line talent for life after Joe Thomas, which, you know, I, I don't think he will retire this year, but if he does, what I'm saying is I think they have the people who can replace him. It may not take one. It may take more than one, one swing at this, but the way they, if, if they're following that same formula, they've got guys that understand what athletic traits and what measurements and some of these other things you're supposed to have to succeed in offense tackling. One guy I'll throw out here that I was watching the other day, just stumbling upon combine numbers. I really like is Will Richardson from, from North Carolina state. He plays right tackle for them, but you watch him. He is nasty. He's athletic. He's tall. He's got ballast. He's got all these things you think of as an offensive tackle. And it's just, you know, he's not a guy who's getting hyped up much, but I don't be surprised if he's a guy that the Browns look at or somebody to keep in mind down the road. That's just ultimately successful. But if, if you're one of these people who likes to watch tape of these prospects, I'd throw them on. I think, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised with what this guy does. I just don't see him lose reps. I mean, he's just good. And then, you know, the NFL uh, for, for the Browns standpoint, the NFL does not have enough offensive linemen go, go around. I cannot say this emphatically enough for as bad as quarterback is in the NFL right now, there may be less offensive linemen per capita. So if you've got guys that understand what they're doing, it's a huge advantage because somebody's going to get hurt at some point and they're need, going to need somebody to step up. And Durango did a great job last year, but something's going to happen. If it's a Jeff Gray, if it's a Christian Snyder, if it's somebody else they find, it's a huge advantage that other teams don't have while they're sitting there looking at teams' practice squads in this. The Browns have the guys to sort of figure out, you know, get these guys, load them up, potentially trade them, you know, if, if they like them. Uh, or, or other teams like them, but the, it just becomes a massive advantage this team has not had in, in decades. They've always imported it, other than Joe Thomas and Joe Batonio. And do you, so do I gather then that you don't think it's altogether likely that they're going to be, say, with one of those top five picks addressing the offensive tackle position? Uh, they could. I mean, Colton Miller, uh, who I, I know no. you're f- <laughs> fond of. <laughs> no. UCLA offense. This is, this is maybe the most amazing part of this is UCLA for all the blocking they didn't do for Jared Goff has two of the most athletic guys in the entire draft class. I love that you just called him Jared Goff, by the way. uh, Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Josh Rosen, super Goff. um, They had two of the most athletic offensive linemen in the entire, entire nation. And neither of them did much blocking. So unless they decide that they fall in love with this kid Colton Miller, who somebody's going to do it. I'm telling you, he's the Josh oh, Allen of offensive sure. line, but he is, sure. That's happening. but he is the, he is, Boy, that I broad think he has a brighter a future. <laughs> I'll tell you what, man, you throw on his film. He's a legitimate marvel as he moves to be sure. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff where you're just like, what is he doing? Uh, and somebody's going to say he's Nate Solder and they're going to pick him early. I don't know if it's the Browns, but, but I do think that, I, uh, this, uh, this front office will not panic. And John Dorsey, to his credit, has been in a position where he hasn't either. Yes, he signed Mitchell Schwartz. Yes, they took Eric Fisher. We'll see. But <laughs> Laurent, Laurent 
whatever his name, Duvernay, Mitch Moore, some of these other guys, you know, they fit those athletic profiles. They may not be in such a panic to address offensive tackle. They may be able to say, look, man, we've got a, we've got a formula to believe in all this stuff so we can attack these other areas with their first five picks. All right, let's dig into the keynote item. One Baker Mayfield. I know he is your guy. Anyone who follows you knows quite well that he is your guy. And you are obviously not anywhere near alone. Um, clearly, he is PFF, Pro Football Focus's number one quarterback. He is, and forgive me and correct me if I don't properly articulate these facts, but as I understand it, he not only has the most efficient quarterback season in the history of college football, he also has the second most efficient season in the history of college football. When you look at his numbers, they are, I think it is, I think it's fair to say that the numbers are completely unassailable. So one must dig into the tape and decide what one thinks. And so when you look at Baker Mayfield, to me, there are going to be the obvious sort of question marks that I think can be dealt with relatively quickly. He's too short. Well, bullshit. I don't, I don't care to go into that argument with any credibility because I just think it's nonsense and I think you think it's nonsense and I think anybody who really pays close attention thinks it's probably nonsense at worst and so we'll just move past that one. Then there's the question about, oh, is he immature? Well, he might be a little immature, but beyond that, you guys know my feeling about character concerns. Number one, I'm in no position to have any real information about the stuff that I think matters and nothing I've seen from Baker Mayfield, although some of it I would have preferred he not do. And at the NFL level, he's going to need to figure out a way to grow up a little bit. Um, I, I'd leave it at that and just say that none of it bothers me enough that it would stop me from taking him if I thought he was the guy. And so when I see him play, I mean, it's pretty hard to argue with what I think is the accuracy um, I don't know, uh, you know, you know that Rosen's my favorite guy, but I don't feel strongly enough about it that I would argue against Baker Mayfield, if that makes sense. And so with that as sort of the backdrop, um, and I feel that way about a number of guys, so we can, we can call me a, a cop-out artist yet again, but I know you do feel strongly about Mayfield. You're part of a vocal group that does. Tell us why. Okay, so you mentioned it. He is the most efficient quarterback in college football history. Um, like, for all the stuff about gimmick offenses, this, that, and the other, you can come up with any argument you want. Nobody has done it better than this kid. He, uh, and yes, he set the record last year for the all time most efficient season last year. Then they graduate the Bolitnikoff winner. They graduate their top two backs, uh, and a few other players. And he comes back with a whole new cast of weapons and breaks it. Uh, with with largely a bunch of kids, by the way, freshman, sophomore receiver, his big thing, his main holdover is a tight end, who's pretty good football player. Uh, Baker Mayfield has been invited to New York three times. That is not done. Like I, I, I it's hard to explain to people just how uh, how much this has not happened to anyone. Baker Mayfield is the and and you can say awards don't matter, whatever. But I will underline this. He's the first ever walk-on to win the Heisman Trophy. Walk-on. And he did it twice. And people will talk about, well, he was offered a, you know, a scholarship to go to Washington State late. He was offered to Florida Atlantic. That's fine. But he actually walked on at Texas Tech. And he walked, then walked on at Oklahoma. And to me, 
if you understand what it, what a player goes through to be a walk on, it is no joke. And, and I think that a lot of people don't understand the starting quarterback of the university of Oklahoma. I mean, I know he's to call him a walk on by the time he got to Oklahoma is a little bit, but whatever he did, he had to, I mean, they had a guy that was pretty good. So he walked in and took over the job that Bob Stoops had no intention of giving him. Well, I mean, it's important to know Oklahoma didn't know he was coming. He just showed up and said, I want to compete here. And they had a pretty good quarterback in Trevor Knight at the time who was coming off a, what was a huge bowl performance at that point where a lot of people were talking about, Oh man, this kid's pretty good. Uh, and, and Mayfield as he does snatch it. And I, and I don't think you, you talk to guys who are walk-ons or, or guys who have been around it. They don't lose that mentality. Literally Baker Mayfield has earned every single thing he's ever gotten from the game of football. The, I don't believe in the idea that all of a sudden Baker Mayfield is going to be picked number one or six or whatever it ends up being. And suddenly he's going to be a lazy ass. Like he has literally fought tooth and nail to get to where he is. And you don't lose that. It's the same thing where Tom Brady knows every quarterback was picked ahead of him. Baker Mayfield has got that same mentality. He's got a list. And in, and in some respects, some people will say that might be his biggest weakness. And, and I think it's fair to say he has rabbit ears a little bit. He's not afraid to take things personally. And, and he uses, you know, you want to call him Michael Jordan. That's fine. But the, some, you know, in this thing where he takes the smallest thing and, and, and takes it into himself to, as motivation, but at the same time, he does fight battles. He doesn't need to fight. He doesn't need to go after Mark Schlereth. Like, you know, these things where, you know, it's fine when Baker Mayfield is the Heisman winning trophy quarterback and they go to the playoffs and everything. It's going to be a little bit of a problem if he's on an NFL team and they're losing and he gets caught up in Twitter fights. It's going to be a bad look. Now, having said that, if that's the worst thing this kid ever does for your football team, you're doing pretty good. Like the disorderly conduct arrest and the video look bad. Um, only for but his elusiveness rating. I, that was the most disappointing part is that he couldn't get away. You're going to need to escape in the NFL. Well, and, and I think the header he took into the concrete was punishment <laughs> enough. It was, true um, enough. But, you know, he wasn't driving. I think that's hugely important in this thing. He was not on his feet. He was a kid who drank too much. Everybody has been there and so forth. Um, that doesn't mean it's okay when you're, when you're that high profile clearly something that shouldn't have happened. Uh, obviously John Dorsey and company who like him, uh, took it right to him, right to his face, made fun of him for it. Uh, and, and, you know, he laughed about it, um, on the field. Let's talk about his height because I'm fine with going there. And the reason I'm willing to go there is because if, if his being the most efficient quarterback ever in college football doesn't tell you that height's not going to matter. Here's what I would point to. I would look at Drew Brees and I would look at the New Orleans Saints and I would ask you how they're built. And they've traditionally built one way, strong interior offensive linemen, particularly their guards. Now I look at Cleveland. Oh my God, there's Joe Batoni and Kevin Zeitler there. It's almost like it was set up for it. So the biggest threat for a short quarterback is not going to be able to step in the pocket. Well, he's got that. The Browns have that covered. JC Treader got to get a little bit better in there but you're not worried about like the tackles become the least important part. It's all about the guard. The Browns are covered. He loves throwing to the tight end, man. There's David and Joku who runs like a gazelle. 
I, I mean, these are things that can work for him. He threw to Joe Mixon so much. He's going to be thrown to like Duke Johnson and stuff. There's just so much about this that says he is perfectly suited for what Cleveland does. And the part of it I love about him is he's, is his mentality. He's not afraid. Uh, and, and again, you can say that chip on his shoulder gets a little bit too big at times, but he's not going to run from this. Uh, he's, he's used to being a winner. He's used to doing this, but again, he's a two-time walk-on who knows exactly what he's getting into. Now, experience matters. I don't care what anyone tells you experience quarterback position matters going from college to the NFL. And I recently, not too long ago, did a tweet about this. And even in this NFL where so many quarterbacks are leaving earlier and earlier and this earlier, is one of the most th- persuasive arguments in his favor, in my opinion, basically 75% of starting quarterbacks in the NFL were three year starters. And even the ones that didn't, which people are going to immediately point to Carson Wentz and, Joe, and uh, Tom Brady. First, Carson Wentz was stuck behind a three-time national champion. Second, Tom Brady, as anyone who knows around Michigan knows, that was some bullshit about politics that had nothing to do with talent. But here's the thing. Both of those guys left college with a degree. And there's such a big part of being a quarterback who has grown up, gotten your degree, and did what you're supposed to do, what, what, what is supposed to happen in college. You're supposed to figure out what you want to do with your life. And and I think this was a big thing that hurt Johnny Manziel. I think this is a big part of what hurt Deshaun Kaiser. It is very hard to be a 20 year old, 21 year old kid and suddenly be told you're the face of the franchise. Yeah, you're supposed to be in college. Fix it. Working is hard and it sucks sometimes. And the average 20 year old and granted, nobody is drafting an NFL quarterback thinking to themselves, well, this is an average 20 year old, but I think sometimes we get lost in our expectations of these guys and the transformations we expect them to make at these young ages when, you know, I keep coming back to this stuff and I think, look, my job, I occasionally have some pretty big stakes on the line and there's not a chance in hell I would send a first-year associate into a trial ever if it were worth any money. And that's what you're, you're telling me you got to do here. You wouldn't send somebody who has a rudimentary understanding of astrophysics out to pilot the space shuttle. And so I, I completely agree with you. And so when I watch this stuff and I look at, at college quarterbacks, what I'm looking for is, okay, look, you got to win. You, your team has to win football games. That, that ma- you can tell me QB wins aren't a thing, whatever. At the college level, if you're any good, your team's winning. Um, and then so I watch Baker, and that's all there. Everything's all there. And so really the only difficulties I have are – I find his offense, I find the Oklahoma offense, like I do a lot of those offenses, a little difficult to project. But I mean, to me, the ball's there for the most part. What do you make of the criticism, not the criticism, but the, the sort of um, the, the perspective that it's difficult to sort of project him forward just because there are dudes open so often in that offense? And then um, sort of a, a different part of that, that coin, I guess. Um, do you make anything of a criticism that I have heard in at least a couple places that he's more of a see it, throw it guy than an anticipation guy. Okay. So the offense Lincoln Riley does a hell of a job. I mean, that's, that's what he's paid to do. Uh, yes. I mean, th- there are no question that, that there are schemed passes that get wide open. Um, what I would tell anybody who watches those, what, what watches his tape is how often he's using his eyes to open up those, those plays. Um, and, and watching where his head goes, he's making full field reads for a lot of these plays. 
He's not just a lot of people try to make him one read quarterback. He's not. Um, I've, I've heard the criticism of anticipation. I've heard the criticism of, well, he, he doesn't take his first, his first uh, look. Uh, you're talking with Brendan Leister, uh, who, who does with, uh, deal with quarterbacks, and, and I respect him a great deal. Here's what I would tell you. If you ask any of the quarterbacks I coach at, at my high school, uh, the first thing that, that we, get, we hammer into their head is take the profit. Uh, that is the first read it's open, take it. Um, but like I went to a clinic, uh, a week ago. So you're the reason Jarvis Landry got signed. (laughs) And, and, and I was at a clinic, uh, you know, and, and this guy from uh, Pittsburgh, uh, was talking about how Tom Moore had a play for every yard yard line from the 20 in that was go for the throat. So I can find you 10 quarterback coaches who are going to tell you take the profit first as, as soon as it's there, go for it. And I can find you 10 quarterbacks who are going to say 10 quarterback coaches and offensive coordinators who are going to tell you go for the throat. I think part of what he's seeing, and he's not wrong, is that Baker was so comfortable in that offense that he could look off an open guy because he knew it was coming and he would go for the throat and he would go for the kill shot. And a lot of the time, if he took those first reads, you're not going to see him just carve teams up. Like that's a special quality to be able to know so well what the other team is doing against you that you know what this is there. I see it that five yard outs there, but I'm going to wait for that, that corner route. I know it's going to be there. That takes a ton of confidence. And the other part of that is Baker Mayfield's completion percentage is 70 and he's not throwing picks. So if you're saying, uh, he's holding out of the ball too long. He's not taking these quick reads. Look, I get it. But at the same time, he just destroyed every other record that has ever been put together while protecting the football. That's just insanely productive and, and uh, efficient. As far as anticipation throws, uh, I would, I would point to anyone who can throw up tape of the senior bowl. Uh, and this becomes a more standard NFL offense against a more standard NFL defense. You can complain it's vanilla, whatever they've never thrown together. And, and Baker Mayfield and, and, and Michael Gallup out of Colorado state, who's a hell of a player in, in his own right, look like they've been thrown together for five years and it was anticipation throws. He was throwing to guys on spots. He knew exactly what the defense was doing and he was on it. Now you could complain about timing of throws Maybe something should have been a little earlier, a little bit later, but he carved them up. He protected the football and he put guys in position to make plays. The one thing you cannot argue with Baker Mayfield. And I think this is hammered home uh, with, by, by him staying as a senior and losing DD Westbrook and losing jo- Joe Mixon and losing Samaj AP Ryan is he elevated a bunch of other players. Orlando Brown is less athletic than Zach Banner. He's about as athletic as my couch. Uh, the tight end is a pretty good football player, but he's not going to be a great NFL prospect. Um, and Baker Mayfield looked, made these guys look like superstars. And part of this and going back to the senior bowl is you take somebody like Will Hernandez didn't know make, make Baker Mayfield from Adam uh, guard from UTEP. And he was working out with Orlando Brown, uh, you know, off season stuff. He goes to the senior bowl, comes back, tells Orlando Brown. I worked with this kid a week. I wish I was there with him for four years. That's how much of an impact 
that Baker Mayfield makes on these guys. And D.D. Westbrook talks, you know, you can find him talking about how Baker Mayfield basically went and picked him up every day to go to practice and that type of stuff. Like you couldn't find a better kid. That leadership, that I, that oeuvre that makes guys believe in him is hugely important. He's got that moxie. He's got that confidence. And people say, oh, he's cocky, whatever. Players love that shit. They eat that up. Coaches love that shit. They want the guy who swaggers on the field like the sheriff. Nobody's more confident than Peyton Manning. Nobody. The dude could barely move when he was sitting there just throwing up 50,000 yards for his career. There was nothing he didn't think he could do. You have to have that in a quarterback. Nobody wants humble quarterbacks. Even in high school, I'm sitting, my head coach is telling me, we, you know, we got to find somebody who's going to step up and be a dude. Like that's, you have to have these things. And when you're six foot and everybody's been telling you, you can't play, you either have that and you decide screw everybody. I'm going to do this or you don't. And that's tremendously impressive. Now, the other part that goes part, the part and parcel with that whole thing is level of competition. People kill. I know you're not one of them. You don't care. People rail against the big 12 and Oh, nobody could cover blah, 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 blah. Baker Mayfield killed the ACC, killed the SEC, and he killed the Big Ten. Like, the, the one hard and fast rule I always thought I could live and die with was if a guy was great at Ohio State or against Ohio State, bronze fans would love him. And this is like the one time where, yeah, you know, flag, it's still though, a tough sale. And, and he, you watch the second half of that game and yep. what he did to an NFL defense, 16 of 17 for 300 and something yards or whatever it was. And he planted the flag. Tell me this dude would not be a legend. If the Browns go in in his first start, beat the Steelers and he plants a plants a bronze flag in the middle of Heinz field. You would love this kid forever. It's the same stuff that made people love Johnny Manziel. And it's the same stuff. They're making you worry that he is Johnny Manziel. And from 20,000 feet away, I get it. But from that distance, I get it. But you look at what, and I've written about this. Look at all the things Johnny Manziel did in the five years of being a college player and his NFL career and compare that to what Baker Mayfield actually did at Oklahoma. There's no comparison. They're not anything alike. And he didn't have Mike Evans who he was throwing, just shucking these air balls at hoping he'd come down with and Mike Evans, God, God love him, would do it. Baker Mayfield is throwing to different receivers all over the place. And they're always great. Nobody knows who Marquise Brown is or CD Harris or some of these other kids. They're just dudes. But at the end of the day, they just catch passes and go and go play great. So yes, I, I like, I understand all these, these fears. I like, cause that's what I call, I, I think of it. I, people are scared and I get it to a certain extent, but the dad is there. Baker Mayfield played 14 games against, uh, against uh, top 25 ranked opponents. Sam Darnold, as a comparison, has played started 24 games, period. That's a big difference in not only, you know, just the amount of competition he's faced and everything else, but the amount of big games he's faced. The worst game of Baker Mayfield's career is probably the Georgia game, and he was great, and they scored 45 points, and his head coach lost in the game. Georgia's loaded with players. I mean, it, it, like 
Go back and watch Baker Mayfield, the first part of that. And people talk about the running back did this and that. Who's calling these plays? It's Baker Mayfield. He's audibly to these check runs, putting him in the right position, doing everything you want from a, a quarterback to do. And he's not getting any credit for it. But, he, you know, 40, I think it's 41 in regulation, I think, uh, against Georgia. And the whole thing leading up to that was, man, I don't know if, 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 if Baker Mayfield can play against a real defense. For basically four quarters, he was the best player on the field, bar none. The only thing that stopped him was his head coach. And 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 the thing I love about Baker Mayfield is he didn't complain about the flu. He didn't complain about possibly getting his ribs knocked or whatever it was. All he said was, "I wasn't good enough." Didn't say anybody else. Didn't throw anybody on the other bus. I wasn't good enough, and that's what I want to have in a quarterback. I love it. I love it. I was going to ask you to pound the table, but I think you just did it. Uh, that will cover it. That's the case for Baker Mayfield. I really look, I come back to being pretty. I, I just come back to being glad that the Browns have the number one pick in a class where I feel like there are multiple viable candidates. Now where they all end up and how good they are all, all are. Um, it should be clear to most of us by now that that is a difficult science. At, at best. And so we'll see how it all shakes out. I know that you do have some pretty good calls in your receipt drawer, uh, not the least of which was a guy like Derek Carr. Um, so I look forward to finding out if this one works out as well. Pete, I really appreciate you taking the time tonight, man. I look forward to doing it again soon. Always love it. And Josh Rosen is a very, very good quarterback in his own right. How's Josh Allen? <laughs> Josh Allen sucks. <laughs> Good talking to you, man. I appreciate it. You got it. All right. That was our old friend Pete Smith here on the Browns Note Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Once again, his Twitter handle, underscore Pete Smith, underscore. You can find him frequently at the NFL Spin Zone. Actually, I should say NFLSpinZone.com. If I say the and I start mix, mix, mixing up people's promotional names, I send you to the wrong places and bad things happen and everybody gets upset. NFLSpinZone.com. Find Pete Smith there. You can find me, Ryan Burns, at FTBL Sickness on Twitter. You can find the podcast at The Browns Note. So this will not be the final podcast of this week. I'll also have one in a day or so out uh, that is The Case for Lamar Jackson, starring one Matt Waldman. Those of you that have been enjoying the two-hour opus that Matt and I put together last week, Uh, First of all, thank you for your kind words on that. Second of all, um, obviously we couldn't have that be the last of Matt Waldman here on the Browns Notes. So Matt and I did a second conversation that night. It probably devolves a little bit because we were um, several hours in at that juncture, but we talked about Lamar Jackson at length. We talked about the fit with the Browns. We talked about sort of the process of quarterback evaluation in the NFL um, through the prism of Lamar Jackson and Frankly, I enjoyed it just as much as I did that other one. So you have that to look forward to. With that, we leave you. Please review the podcast. Throw up the stars if you would. Positive review, positive feedback. Shoot questions to any of us on Twitter, including myself, the show. You can hit at Brendan Leister as well, and we'll make sure we catch up with those questions. Until next time, hope you enjoyed it, folks. Go Browns. Woof. (laughs) 